back again with the conversation series on Get a Grip on Lighting. Webster Marsh and Ron Kuzmar are going to rock it through with producer. Who are they with? Norman Russell. Norman Russell, folks. That's right. We had the producer come in there and save me. We don't, That's okay, though. I can't remember everything. You guys all know that. They're going to talk about lighting controls because that's what Webb and Ron and their guests always do. But before we get to them, we got to go to SATCO.com. Light thing, right thing, Greg Eric. That's right. Satco has it all, man. What do they got today for you? You know, man, I got to tell you, I just this week I wrote two POs to Satco for track lighting. Beautiful track lighting. Ooh. Yeah, and a lot of the distributors don't sell track lighting, but it's a high profit, high value item you can have, you know, when you're out in the field. And for guys like us that swing through the trees with knives in our teeth looking to make a quick buck, mm-hmm. that's for you, Webb, by the way. <laughs> Um, you know, when you're out there with track lighting, it's a good opportunity to really help your customers. Yeah. And if you get, if you have all the uh, pricing and stuff in your heads, you can come up with a nice track lighting system there for somebody in half an hour and boom, and make 2000 bucks real quick. That's what it's all about, man. Yeah, brother. But for right now, we got to go to satco.com because they're your track lighting partner. That's right. And of course, proud members of the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. So I'm going to go back to swinging through the trees. And but right now I'm going to give you Ron and Webb, Rebster, on the conversation series. All right, welcome everyone. I am the self-proclaimed lighting control specialist, Webster Marsh, here with my co-host Ron Kuzmar, and today we are chatting with Norm. Norm, do you want to give us a little elevator pitch explanation of who you are, what you do? Sure. Uh, yeah, Norm Russell, uh, principal uh, consultant with NV5 Engineering and Technology, uh, lighting designer, um, lighting system designer and engineer. Um, we do a lot of work on higher ed campuses, so I kind of live at uh, theaters, television studios, sound stages at that at that realm. But I also have a lot of background in commercial broadcast as well. So lighting for the camera has uh, uh, taken me away from the theater, which were my roots. Um, but all those things travel with you, as you know. I mean, you learn new things in your theater world and they get applied in your TV world. Um, and also to jump back and forth, and especially uh, when we're having a live event that is also either captured or, or broadcast live, uh, requires a little extra, a little finesse on the lighting. I've done that several times. So that's where I live, and uh, lighting BS. And I, I live for lighting. I'm crazy for it. I got the best job in the world. Don't tell my boss. He'll, you know, reduce my salary. No, just kidding. But no, I, 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 I love lighting, and I, I, got, I work with some really great people, and I don't want to do a plug or anything, but uh, I, you know what? It's As they say, it's hard to soar with the eagles when you're running with a bunch of turkeys, okay? So being lucky enough to, <laughs> being lucky enough to be uh, associated, I don't know how I snuck in the room, crashed the party, I suppose, but there's a lot of real good eagles that I, I run with, uh, some really fine people. And they, they make demands of me that I sometimes don't make of myself. So it's really great to have a collaborative uh, group that, that we work with. So, and we're all over the U.S. and uh, we're all in different, we're all in home offices. So we don't, there's not a there there for NV5. There is, but we're not part of it. And uh, we really enjoy working uh, remotely. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us here on, on this chat. We like to talk about lighting control specifically here. And um, you and I have had a lot of good conversations in the background before this podcast about lighting controls in general. But um, And also, you're a member of IES. You work on a lot of committees and, and really facilitate the educational forefront of, of people's knowledge. So, um, you know, 
But the, one of the reasons I asked you to join us is because you really kind of reflect a, a unique scenario in the lighting design and controls world, being involved in broadcast lighting, being involved in uh, more theatrical side <clears throat> of the architectural systems out there. And you really get kind of knee deep into the lighting controls, but you also represent the engineering side of things, which um, up until now we've sort of kind of had people alluding to engineers in either positive or mostly negative light. Um, and so, you know, you kind of get a chance here to, to stand up for the engineers, but at the same time, give a give the other side of the story for lighting controls, because we're my perspective is we're in the Wild West when it comes to lighting controls. Mm -hmm. And so it's really anyone's take on what's going on here. But out of curiosity, you know, what is your relationship with lighting controls as as this role? You know, it, it bec it's a large part of what we do. Um, it, it, you know, we have we have two separate parts of the world that I live in. We have lots of designers and I have one foot in that world. We have lots of engineers and I have a foot in that world as well. And the idea is that, you know, when we see an architectural lighting design, very often the architectural lighting designer, with, with exceptions I know, generally don't focus on controls because uh, I used to say, well, when there's one cue, why do you need controls <laughs> to turn it on? But now that we've become, you know, LED, the LED has transformed our world in so many ways that we can't, you know, we can do two hours on that. But the idea is that now controls and, and, and really finite controls become an important new tool. And it's not just about turn the lights on and then they sit that way all day long. And then when the janitor comes and turns them off or an ox sensor turns them off and everybody goes home. Now it's like there's a dynamic to it throughout the day. Uh, some of the dynamic is task oriented. Some of it is uh, circadian rhythm oriented. Some of it is, is uh, entertainment oriented because we're trying to present an image or create an image. All of that comes back to control. It's, it's like you, you have to have the luminaires in the right places and all the right luminaires. I, don't get me wrong. Design is a real important. That's one half of it. But a lot of architectural designers and other designers just tend to say, I'm going to write a uh, somewhat general control intent narrative and hand it off to the electrical engineer. And the engineer is going to go figure it out. And he, and he or she uh, knows what the code requirements are knows and understands uh, how to get the permit to pass, knows how to do the paperwork, especially for T24 in California. It's not something that's just snap. And, and so they'll do all of that. And we don't, that has nothing to do with design. Eh, wrong. It has everything to do with design. <laughs> you know? and, and so, so we, we've carved out a little niche for, my, for our, our little operation. And I also have to give a plug for my right arm is a guy named Steve Cooper. And, uh, Steve worked for many years in a theater environment. Uh, the good, he saw the good, the bad, and the ugly as a technical director at a, at a college university theater that was a roadhouse for a lot of stuff that came through. And he solved a lot of problems, and he's very much a theater lighting and rigging person. Um, and that's, he is CLCP. You know, he's very deeply involved into uh, controls. CLCP stands and, for Certified Lighting Controls Practitioner. That's right. Sorry. Sorry. Yes. And, and so the idea is that Steve and I take, uh, we do the design. We, we, we have it all in house. We do the design because we're both design oriented. We, we want to have, you know, what is it going to look like and 
what colors are going to be and what how's it move and you know what's the pow bam cuting of the whole thing but then we move into <clears throat> we don't write a control intent except to explain it to somebody else and really work with the client about this is how it's going to work and then drop that into sequence of operations as well and develop <clears throat> those two parts are starting to be uh, you mentioned IES, and I'm all about standards. I, I think it's uh, something that really is a real valuable contribution that IES makes to the lighting world. And there's a new standard that's under public review right now, and it's all about <laughs> control right. intent narratives and sequence of operations. And I know you know about that, but just for all the world out no, no, there, it's like that's, that's starting to be codified into something that's really right. meaningful and important. And it can't just be, I want it to look a little like, you know, 8 a.m. cloud. Okay, that's great. But <laughs> really, what do you want? How do we do well, that? So, you know? so now I want to, I want to, I want to kind of go back to a statement that you said earlier, which is sort of how the lighting designer kind of draws a line that says, okay, you know, this is where design ends, and the engineer picks up the controls side of whatever it is. But you know, hasn't that always been the case? You know, even before LEDs, wasn't that sort of the relationship between designer and engineer? So what changed? Yeah, no, you're, you're right. Historically, that's always been the case. And and not always, I wouldn't say that. There are some people, there are some lighting designers I know that are very tuned in to controls. Mm -hmm. But most architectural lighting designers are really focused on the overall look and the feel and revealing the architectural form and space. And that, that's their job. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not slamming them. I'm that, that's what they do. Sure. And they do a great job at that, but they tend to, to have left it in the past to the electrical engineer because it really is pretty much hardcore engineering. You know, it's just, it's, it's riser diagrams. It's like connecting the boxes and figuring out what's going to work and then figuring out, well, how about emergency egress lighting? Well, that's got to go in there somewhere too. So there's a lot of other technical things that you have to do for life safety and for code compliance and for permits. So, so designers tend to think of that being more the purview of the electrical engineer. So historically, it's always gone there. But with the idea of not just having um, phase dimming on load circuits being the control issue, which has been for many, many years, and that's the purview of the engineer as well, because it's all about, well, how many amps you got to run on that circuit? Right. It's like, I need to find out about that. And I didn't know about that on my stamps on the drawing. So you need to, you know, you need to have the engineer for that. But as we progressed, and as we start to see um, the the available control systems out there that are really superb, and there's all kinds of manufacturers. There's it is kind of wild west. They're all kind of moving in slightly yep. different directions, and they each have their own kind of specialty in terms of what you're trying to do. But it's it, but it's ultimately the same thing. It's no longer having to control the illuminance value in a space by modulating voltage. It's about, it's modulating the driver on each individual luminaire. So all of a sudden, it's the, it's the holy grail for lighting designers. Granular control. Every single luminaire, you can adjust its output, not only for intensity, but for color, maybe some focus ability if it's a mover or some so, other values are available. So is it the so fact that we're now... So what changed? Yeah, yeah. So what changed? Well, um, Build it, and they will come. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you have controls that are granular, you know, that are that really, I mean, just look at almost any one of the major control manufacturers out there. Any one of their systems is like, you can you can do what you want to do. You can make the room be every minute of every hour of every day throughout the whole week, throughout the whole year. You can program that, 
and you can override it where you need to have an override, but that wasn't available, you know, or it was available if you had a boatload of money to throw into the project. And so the, what's changed is now we have the tools. Now we have much more digital uh, network-based kinds of tools that let us do fine, fine art things. Right. So based on what you're telling me, I mean, it sounds like really the, the transitional line here is when we separated lighting control from voltage control or amperage control. You know, we're no longer just a switch on the wall or a line voltage dimmer. We have more intelligence going on between that user interface and the luminaire. And when that happened, there really was sort of a dynamic shift in our industry that changed the roles of lighting designers and engineers within that system. Is that accurate? Absolutely. Absolutely and accurate. And in fact, so, so here, so in reality, here's how that plays out from my perspective, my little yeah. jaundiced view here, you know, so there are some companies out there and I'm uh, maybe I'm not doing shameless plugs or anything, but there are designers out there that are really phenomenal and light switch is probably a company you know about. They've done some phenomenal things and it's, it, it falls within the category of architectural lighting, but it's real specialty stuff. And a lot of what they do is all about how it moves, you know, how it comes up, how it goes away, how it shifts from here to there, what color change, all the dynamic parts of it is what really cool. Well, a lot of architectural lighting designers got into that and went, hey, you know, it's not just turn the switch on and, I, and I'm giving credit where credit's due. A lot of architectural lighting designers are moving into the realm of having a much higher awareness of controls and starting to write much more finite control intent narratives and sequences, even sequences of operation. So they see that, hey, it's a one more thing I can do with my lighting design here that's really something that's fascinating, that draws people in, that has a unique expression to it. All those things that help us make, make communication possible with, with light. And the more that designers see that as a possibility, they want to, they want to do it. Now, there are some people, some of the older people amongst ourselves, okay, <laughs> who don't want to do that. And I can say that because I'm one of the old guys, okay? But there are some older folks out there that just say, hey, what I want to do is what I've been doing for the past 30 or 40 years, and it works, and I can do it a little better with some of these digital controls, but I just want to have the thing work properly. And there's nothing wrong with that, especially if it's a warehouse. You don't yep. have to knock yourself out on the design, okay? Um, but, but if it's uh, uh, an atrium with multiple vent capabilities within that space, and your client is is really inclined is really interested in doing some interesting things within that space. Well, then the designer wants to say, "Oh yeah, here's what we could do in there." And by having those kind of tools, it's moving some of the architectural lighting designers away from just writing the intent and passing it off and actually doing controls. So, so the responsibility of the design, the lighting designer, um, is still just guiding the intent of the lighting, but it's kind of taking a bit more involved uh, role with the controls aspect, maybe not identifying every single connection and termination within the system, but there needs right. to be a little bit more ownership of the lighting control system in comparison to previous instances of specifications writing where the lighting designer would just give uh, a general idea of how the lighting needed to look, but not necessarily right. how the controls were involved in that. But because of what, yeah, basically because what, what, we have so many, so many more parts and pieces, so much more capability, so much more flexibility, 
and the spectrum is just much greater that the lighting designer needs to kind of go, okay, here's along the spectrum, boom, right there is where I want my capabilities to lie, as opposed mm -hmm. to the assumption that, okay, things are gonna dim, things are gonna switch, and that's it. Yeah, yeah, and I think part of it is that um, it requires the lighting designer to uh, make the effort to understand, not in, as you said, not every nut and bolt, not, not every single piece of the system, but you need to understand what's possible and some of the techniques that make those things possible, not in the depth of an engineer, but you have to understand those things in order to speak engineer, in order to you know, make a statement that's actionable. When you say, I want something that's like an ADM silver cloud, I get a feeling for that, but how I do that with my system, I need a little more. And it's, it doesn't take that much more for the light designer to say, okay, it's channels one through 23 at 87% in a color 75 or something more actionable for the, for the engineer to, to, to work on. And I'm seeing that those architectural lighting designers that are moving in that direction are gaining a knowledge and an understanding of controls. And that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, uh, totally. So I guess in your mind, so having a, a better sequence of operation, having sort of a unified document, right? Having standards for that is all gonna help. But whose ballpark does this really fall into? Do, does it fall to the lighting designer? Does it fall to the engineer? How do we make that decision of who's gonna be responsible to define that sequence of operation and work with the owner? Well, first, going, in, going into my mind is a dangerous place. We don't wanna go there, I think. But, <laughs> well, that's uh, why we a, have you weird, here. We wanna delve into well, okay. <laughs> It's a really good question because right now it's open for grabs. It's up for right. grabs. It's like, it happens. I can give you five of our projects and it's happening five different ways on each one of those projects. Yes. So, you know, it, it, it largely depends a lot on the owner or the owner's rep and what kind of involvement they have in the project and how and to what extent they want to see certain things happen in that space. And then they're going to demand that somebody do it. And then the, whoever that somebody is, is going to be uh, an adjudication between the, the lighting designer and the electrical engineer. And they'll get to a place where one or the other are going to do it, or it's going to be a joint venture, which ideally it should be. It should be a joint venture. They should both be working in concert. But it starts with the owner. If the owner has a clear idea of what they want to have happen, then, then they're going to demand that, okay, how does this happen? How do we, how right. we make this work? Who's going to write that intent? Who's going to write the sequence? So it, it's a lot. There's like 20 roads to grandma's house. You know, yes. you can, and any one yeah. of them will get you to grandma's house, but you got to go down yep. the road. You can't just wish Anyways. yourself to grandma's house. Yes. And this ties right back into one of our previous conversations that Webster and I had that this really involves more training to the owner's rep, right? Because if you think of that one person who's on the project from start to finish that has that responsibility, it is the owner's rep. And so more controls training needs to fall to the owner's rep so that they understand. They don't have to understand everything, but they need to have Great. enough knowledge to get through sequence of operations and work with the engineer and the lighting designer to get to that point. And I think that's right now one of our, our bigger holes. And if you could get owner's reps to really start to grasp that and understand, we could really fill, the, fill those holes. I, I, think, I agree with that completely. I, I'm yeah. just curious from your perspective, um, you know, what is the incentive 
for for understanding this because you know if we look at it in the sense of AV consultants and how they kind of emerged out of a, a, a need for there to be a coordination between the AV systems and you deal with this a lot with broadcasting you know there there is an incentive to awareness because of the success of the AV system but with lighting controls the awareness seems to be dependent upon agreement with energy code for the most part and then once you get past energy code and you have additional stuff or if, if you're if your project is specialty like a broadcast space then okay there there's a little bit more incentive there but for the majority of projects that you work on outside of that niche application do you see an incentive for for awareness you know yes i do and, and I think, it, again, it comes down to individual cases, but um, very often the, the architectural lighting designer can be the core source of that incentive drive for the, for the owner. For example, very often you do flybys or flythroughs to, to show the space and just very basic, not photographic, but very basic, here's what the space looks like. Well, I've seen some architectural lighting designers that use that to show how the space changes by, by, by manipulating controls in such a way that changes it from, okay, today it's an art gallery during the day, but in the evening we have this gala with, you know, it's a, it's a dinner in the same space and how it changes in the light. And you can do that with SketchUp types of, types of programs or other types of programs or visual previs or visualization programs. That makes the owner go, wow, oh, that's cool. I want that. I want that to happen. How do we do that? Then the lighting designer, the onus is going to on the lighting designer and say, well, yeah. we need to talk about controls, you know, and you need to understand what's possible. And I, I see that as being one of the primary modes of, of motivating the owner to know more about controls by seeing what's possible. And now we have tools that show that, you know, it's, sure. it's possible to, to demonstrate that. But so, I mean, from your, your stance, we need to get the lighting designers and the owners or the owner's rep in the same room which from what we've heard isn't a common thing that happens because generally lighting designers will be a sub sub consultant of a primary consultant and they may be completely dependent upon that primary consultant's ability to get them into the same space. Yes. Yeah, that, that's very true. And in fact, what, how do you get around that? Well, <laughs> you can't get around it. It's the nature of business. I mean, Generally right. speaking, the owner will almost invert as outside of design build, which is a different kind of an animal. Okay, in a design bid build world, the architect is going to be the first person that that uh, the the uh, owner hires to, to come in and start. And then that that architect, you know, assembles in the team of well, who's needed for this project. So it, it's incumbent on the designer who's subbed to the architect to have that conversation with the architect and and require it. You know, make sure that if, if whatever's going to happen in the space is really dependent on some fairly sophisticated controls, then the architect needs to understand, oh, well, we need to have, you know, an, an awareness of what's possible. Then we have a chance to drive it up to the owner. And again, I don't know any other way to do it. That's how I do it. It's sort of, sure. like, yeah. it's sort of like stick and carrot, okay? Um, uh, you but know, from your point, I mean, generally. from your point, you know, the lighting designer really should be the, the source of this drive. They should be the ones flagging everyone's attention saying, okay, controls need to be discussed. Uh, 
We need to right. sit down with the right people and identify the criteria. That's where the control intent narrative comes from, for instance. And so these conversations really need to be happening. And it's, you know, if you don't have a knowledge, a capability and awareness of lighting controls, then you're not going to be able to have a, an effective conversation to begin with. So circling back to your core, core thesis here, you know, the lighting designer not only needs to know about lighting controls, needs to know nuanced differences of how lighting controls work, but also needs to drive that conversation about lighting controls. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. And I, in fact, that I, I'm, 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 I think I'm giving the question that is being begged here. Okay. The question to me is that um, the lighting designer has to be better at educating the architect who then in concert with the architect can better educate the owner. And, and when I say educate, I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I mean that in a very positive way to, right. to be able to, let me take a second. If I've had any little success in, in my career, it's because I, I really like working with owners and architects from a point of view of, have you thought about doing this? W what about this? Or you want to do this thing while they're moving through this area. What happens if while they're moving through this area, the lights follow them? Or, you know, giving them ideas about how it could work. It, 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 to me, that starts to make the architect and the owner kind of excited about it or, or more interested, shall we say. And then from excitement or interest follows the ability, the need, the desire to be better educated, to know about what's going on. So, and, I, and I'm not the only guy. I, I didn't identify this as like, you know, it's, it's really about, hey, there's, there are architectural lighting designers out there that know all about this. And that's how they are successful lighting designers because they excite their client. They get their client interested in doing something really kind of special. So that's what it has to be. I don't know how else, how else to do it, you know. Um, well, but so, I, I mean, this... this this, this calls into question, you know, that uh, what Ron was asking about who owns the scope. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of instances where lighting designers will say, well, you know, the hard line is at controls because I don't have that under my contract. That's under the engineer's contract. And so, you know, how do we deal with this discrepancy? Because the, 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 the whole industry is changing to demand more of the lighting designer to be able to design lighting controls a little bit more than they used to, but their contracts, their fees have not adjusted to compensate for that new scope. Yeah, no. yeah. And, and the last thing owners want to see is added fee from something right. they, th they don't think they need or want. Right. So again, I, I, to me, it goes back, I agree with the, the idea that the, it's, it's a, a real demand that's put on the lighting designer to have the owner and the architect understand the necessity for a, a very clear focus on controls and making some good choices there. To my mind, I think I see that happening. It's slow, but it's happening. I'm seeing more and more, especially, again, I hate to be ageist about this whole thing, but I work with some very young designers out there. They're not afraid. Young men and women who have got, and I must say, who largely come out of a theater world or a broadcast right. world or a performance <clears throat> world, concert, whatever, and have seen flash and trash and have seen all kind of happy, fun stuff that you can do and are excited about wanting to bring, bring that to a project. But to me, it starts with that person and it even goes back one step above when, when you're at, at planning and programming on a project, the first thing we're developing is a basis of design. 
And when you're writing your basis of design or crafting your basis of design, all too often, uh, a control intent narrative is, is not a part of that. That's seen as something, well, it's around DD or somewhere down the road. Well, yeah, but you can start an abridged version of that control intent narrative in, in the basis of design document. And it starts to get people to think about it as being not a static thing, but it being a dynamic thing. And, and I think that the good designers, and I'm stealing stuff from everybody I work with because I think somebody said there's nothing new under the sun since, you know, the Greeks. We all borrow and <laughs> learn things from everybody else. Well, I, what I'm seeing that works is those people that are writing a really good basis of design because they're including at least some level of discussion about how do things move? How, what's the dynamism within the design? And you can start it at BOD and then flesh it out when you get through DD on, on down. I'm using all this alphabet soup, I know, but, but you start it at the very top and that you got a chance now to get people interested in because some people will say, what is this BOD? What's this all about? Well, you got an opening. <laughs> There's a chance to, you know, bring somebody up to speed on, hey, here's some really neat things we can do with this facility. Mm -hmm. So got to start there, right? Right. So, I mean, we're seeing it slowly shift and we're seeing lighting designers <clears throat> taking on this responsibility. But are we, are you seeing uh, an increase in fee as a result of that new scope that's being introduced? I, I wouldn't say an increase in scope of fee from my perspective because, um, well, MV5, our division, engineering technology, is heavy on audiovisual. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's other things that into IT and security, and we do acoustics as well. But AV is a big, big part of what we're doing. Right. And we, when we roll lighting into the AV design, that's a, that's that's our packaging, you know, uh, sure. advantage, shall we? And the idea is that when we're at that level, we're generally working with a, a client who's not looking for a $1.98 solution. You know, they're, they don't want to, not throwing money away, I'm not, not saying that, but they're doing something that's going to be kind of high end to begin with. And so they don't want to compromise or cripple it. They're going to go pay how many hundreds of thousands of dollars for that direct view LED wall, okay? Right. Well, if you can't see it very well or there's some veiling reflections, from your, you know, they want to have some understanding that the tech that they're doing for AV is going to be mm -hmm. consonant with the tech that they're doing for lighting. So I don't see it. Sometimes we get some resistance, but we also always include an option uh, for those kinds of services so that a lot of times the giving away trade secrets. No, not really. Everybody else knows about this. Let me tell you this. What happens is that at the outset of a project, the owner and the architect may not be sensitive to the need for certain things that you know mm -hmm. have to be done. Right. So you price yourself out of the project by putting them at the at the head end for a billion dollars and you don't you don't you don't hear from those people again. No, we don't do it that way. What we do is what's required and here's some options. And they don't know about those options until they get into the project. And once we start to be into the project and they start to see, oh, we're going to have to do this. Well, we have an option for that. And, you know, it, it amounts to an occasional ad service, but it's an ad service that makes sense to the client at that point. Mm -hmm. They now are sensitive to the fact that, oh, I want to do this. Well, I need to have a much more sophisticated control system to do that. So, you know, it's, I don't think it's devious, but I think it's just a way of working with the market in a way that the market behaves. And that is at the outset, the architect and the owner have a vague, generalized Valhalla view of the project. They don't have a nuts right. and bolts, real hard uh, and fast idea of what it's going to be. 
as we progress through SD schematic design and get into design development, things shape up. You know, the stone isn't a stone anymore. It's starting to be more like an elephant or something that we're carving here. And then when the art, the architect and the owner see that, they can make better choices about, oh, we want to put some color on that thing, or it needs to be taller, whatever. Now you can start talking about, well, let's do this. And I think that's really a smart way to do it. It's not forcing anything on anybody. It's like making it, laying it out there and saying, when we get to that point, let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think it's great that you guys are doing that. Right. And it is. It's great that you guys are doing that and you're sort of forward thinking about that. But unfortunately, there are far too many other companies and designers out there who aren't doing that. Right. And then so what ends up happening is it is controls do get looked at as an afterthought. And then integrators or somebody else gets brought in, you know, three quarters of the way through the project to try and now figure out this problem that no one realized existed. And now there's these added fees and who's paying for it, whose budget's it coming out of, right? So there needs to be more people thinking about it on the front end. But unfortunately, that's just not the norm at the, right? There's so many design firms out there. Unfortunately, that's not the standard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I understand that. But boy, uh, sounding very fatalistic. I'm sure. (laughs) However, I think what happens is those people fall by the wayside. You know, because we're we're not alone. NV5 is a wonderful company, but we're not alone. There, we have some real good competition out there that's got the same idea about, hey, educating the client, uh, providing options that make it work, understanding how to visualize and realize the, the vision and the desire that the owner has. Hey, that's the whole world. It starts with, I'm going to take a step back now and bore you to death, but when you're, when you're working in a theater environment, you know, Shakespeare's famous words, the play is the thing, okay? The play is the thing. It's not about me, it's not about you, it's the play. And when you start to focus on the idea of what is the, what's the project that we're trying to do here? How is it going to work? What effect is it gonna have on the people that either view it or work within it or whatever it happens to be? And if you have that as your focus, then you're gonna do a better job of all getting to the same place at the same time because it's not about a diva or a very, very wealthy owner, or some designer who's the biggest, meanest SOB in the room and gets his way all the time. No, it's about the people that are on that project working towards a common goal. And I know that sounds very Pollyanna, but to me, the best projects that we've ever worked on, that's how they've evolved, is having, you know, a very clear idea of a really, you know, special project, and that be the focus, not some individual desire. Does that make sense? I I would say... You're preaching to the choir here, right? I think all three of us would agree with you, right? Absolutely. I don't think you're going to get any disagreement from us. How do we how do we fix it? How do we get everyone else to understand this philosophy? How do we get right. the rest of the industry to start looking forward? Okay. My my personal feeling is that uh, you think macro and you act micro. Okay. The macro is understanding that it's changing and shifting and supporting it in any way that you can. If you're going to be reading or writing standards, or if you're going to be evaluating in a public review standards, 
where you're looking at codes that are shifting away from energy efficiency because how much more freaking efficient can we get? You know, <laughs> it's now shifting more to my, remember everybody's everybody's been talking over the last few years about human centric lighting. Well, guess what? Yeah. We, we're done with the energy part. We're we're really about as energy efficient as you can get with a current state of the art LED network driver kind of a system. But sure. now it's more about, well, what does it feel like and how does it work and how do humans work in that space, okay? So the idea is shifting into that kind of an idea. So you have to sell that idea. And I use the word sell guardedly because it sounds a little too much like I'm trying to move you into a really crappy used car, okay? That's not the idea here. <laughs> the idea starts, to my perspective, in the proposal and even a little bit before the proposal that's being written to the owner, to the architect. In that proposal, there are the first three or four or maybe five paragraphs is where you're going to get the architect and the owner to understand some of the important elements that have to go into this thing to make it be a fantastic project. And I think that's where you start. That's where you start to get the owner and the architect to understand those things. And if you do that well, then and you win the work, then you take each one of those steps. Next is basis of design. <laughs> Next is, you know, sequence of operate, et cetera, et cetera. But you have to start somewhere. And for me, it's always about getting the owner, the architect interested or possibly even excited or, or an occasionally giddy about an idea that you can bring to the table with that project. So. Well, so point. now this, this is, there's an interesting thing in there that you said, um, about this and I'm curious because I've always wondered why theatrical designers keep ending up in controls focuses in the architectural world. And at first I thought it might be, well, you know, they deal with DMX all the time so they understand protocols and controls devices. But I wonder if it's more that they understand moving light versus static light. You know, up mm -hmm. until recently, architectural lighting had been very static. It's always a, a picture frame of a, of a thing, but now we're dealing more with movement and, you know, what does that transition from this look to that look look like? And so I'm wondering if maybe the reason why theatrical designers tend to lean more towards controls is just because that's how they're wired in the sense of thinking about lighting, not just the controls components. I, yeah, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Yeah, I, I think because you, you, it's the tools that you've been working with in the theater for four or five years or 10 years or whatever, as opposed to in the architectural lighting design world, if you're going through a course of study for architectural lighting design, you're, we're, you're working with different tools. And, and I'm using tools in the broadest sense, a, pro, a process and a procedure is different and it's more focused on things that have to do with architecture, which is not bad, I'm not slamming it. But, but the idea is that those people that are coming out of a theater environment have worked with those tools that let you, and, and they understand how to move those things around. But again, it also comes from the fact of thinking about it as something outside of themselves too, thinking of the bigger project that, that it can serve and not just like, yeah, I can make all the lights do this crazy stuff. Yeah, okay, a lot of people can do that. What so about the show? Therefore, then, um, taking the fact that we have this static versus fluid perspective, maybe the other change here is that lighting is really becoming more dynamic than it used to be in the sense yes. of you don't, you're not just thinking of it in snapshot mode. 
you're thinking of it in a, a move, moving entity, uh, something that can really develop and evolve with the building or with the people occupying that space. Um, instead of just, okay, we're lighting these columns, we're lighting this ceiling, we're doing some cove light over here. You know, it's right. no longer just these little packets of, of lighting. It's, it's a holistic and developing and evolving experience medium that we're really experiencing. And so maybe to what you're saying, you know, people who are more experienced, but aged in their knowledge of lighting and controls, they still view it through this lens of it is static. Everything is static and it's all presets. There's nothing that happens between preset one and preset two. But in theater, you're always having to go, okay, what's going to happen between Q1 and Q2? You know, it used to be back with the early days of LEDs, you would have what we referred to as mud, you know, because you go from one color to another and in between the the LEDs start (laughs) blending and you get this really disgusting in between color. And if that fade is a minute long, you're stuck in mud for like 30 seconds. And so Godfather, Godfather sepia is your whole show. (laughs) Right. So, so I mean, taking that idea and applying it to architecture, that's, I think, you know, the thing that people need to start changing their perspective on architectural lighting controls is it's not just preset one, preset two, preset three, but it's also what is happening between these presets? When are they happening? How long are they happening? You know, I, I think a lot of people go, oh, well, daylight, you know, if we're going to follow the daylight cycle, then it's like, okay, we've got a five second fade. It's like, no, (laughs) if you have a five second fade, you're no longer replicating anything that's natural. (laughs) So not in um, this world, (laughs) not in this world. But, you know, I think the thing is people still kind of default to this, this static perspective of lighting when it comes to architectural controls. And so maybe part of the other thing is, is the theater folks who are coming from a very different world and coming into this architectural world, maybe need to start talking about, look, there's a whole host of other things that we were thinking about in theater that architecture's not really thinking about right now. I, I agree. I think that's very much the case. But there's also a generational thing that's happening here too. And from my perspective, that the, the people that are working in these spaces or being exposed to the whatever it is we're doing, they have a different way of viewing the world than some 60 plus folks have. And it's faster. And it's if you're on something for longer than about eight or 10 seconds, it's like, little boring <laughs> or you know there's, there's a more of a, you know i mean there, there's there's more of a sense of wanting more things to happen in your visual world and, and i'm seeing that being generational so if that's what people want and and like and are moved by that well then lighting designers and technicians and engineers start to respond to that in terms of doing things that are much more interesting and dynamic than that static preset one, preset two, preset three, go home kind of thing. Um, it will happen. It's happening over time and it will happen. The question I think we're really talking about is how, how do we help that happen faster mm-hmm. or more efficiently or more directly? Right. That's the hard question. You know, it, it can only go as fast as it can go, but we, right. can, but we can make it broader. It can only go so fast, but we can spread it out. So it's not just this much that's moving there. It's this much that's moving forward. And it's just like every time we have an opportunity to work on a project, take the high road. 
you know, talk to people about the possibilities, talk to people about color. I mean, just color alone. There's so many wild and wonderful things that can be done with color or even subtle things that can be done with color. So I think that the more we as professionals and are working within the design and control world uh, show that they're, they're both, there's yin and yang, they're both halves of the same thing, then, then architects and owners and the public at large will start to see them and regard them as one thing, not a separated thing that some engineer in a dark corner over there with you know water on the floor is working on. It's something that everybody works on together. So I, I don't know how else it happens by us taking the high road every time we do a project. Yeah, and I, it's funny, you know, to sort of double back down to Webster's question, I think a lot of the reason we're seeing younger theatrical designers come into this world is it's 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 boils down for me to three simple things it's fun it's challenging and the longevity of the projects right in theater so many of these projects are in and out right a week a night if it's an event right it's gone right architectural lighting is going to be there for 10 20 years you can put your stamp on that building you can drive down into the city every night and go i did that and you can show yeah. that to your kids, right? And it it has that that longevity to it. And there's a constant challenge, right? Theater controls, they don't change too much. You add some fixtures, your design changes for the show, but there's not a huge, there's not, there's not necessarily a significant challenge in every show, in every production. But in lighting controls in these architectural projects, they can be so complex depending on the manufacturers involved and everything else that it it creates that challenge that people want to go after, right? That people want to do. And that's where the fun comes in. Because not only is yeah. the color fun, but the chat, like building the controls and coming up with the design and working through the challenges is also fun. And I think that's yeah. where, right, all of that combined, if we could get everybody to understand that, that would, that's it. That's the magic potion right there. Well, the fact is, I think what you just outlined is that I think that architectural item designers should, should, uh, follow some some course of study within theatrical stage lighting, uh, just to be exposed to it, just to work with those kinds of tools, get to understand how those kinds of things work and think dynamically, then I think that starts to, to transpose more into the architectural design. But I want to follow up on one thing you just said, Ron. It's true that the challenge is a real important part of it, and the other items are important parts of it as well. But in the world of theater, we don't all get to be lighting designers. No, you know, that's, that's true. There's only, there's only a finite number of slots for people to actually stage lighting designers. And if you really want to get the very top of the whole heap, then that's even that's a handful of people. I mean, it's really a small number. Mm, right. So, so, so we just throw away all the other lighting designers? No, they find different ways to, to, for their path, for the area that they want, want to work in, or have their skills, but see want to transfer to some other place. It also may be that when you're 21, who cares? Climb a ladder with a 2K over your shoulder. What does it matter? 2 a.m. I'm focusing. Doesn't matter. Okay. As you get older, that changes. You know, you have a wife and children. Maybe you have a mortgage. You have other things going on in your life. And working in the world of architectural lighting design as opposed to theater is a little more like a nine to five. You know, it's a little more like you come to work during yep. the day, you do your work and then you go home and have dinner with your family. And, and as you get older, I think that becomes as important as being, you know, I'm gonna light on Broadway, you know? Yeah, okay, we'll go after that. But 
look around to your your two thousand closest friends that are also heading for Broadway as well. You know, not all of you going to yeah. get to do that. And so I'm right. not saying that in a negative way or 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 a mean way. It's just that we all find our ways. Uh, you know, we just there there are things that find that that find us just because we happen to be thrown into something. I I, I know we're getting close to the end of the hour, but I got to tell you a little war story if I don't if I might. I'll go for um, it. When I, when I was in college and I was doing, uh, you know, lighting design in college, um, the chairman of the theater department called me into his office and said, hey, the local PBS station is starting a new thing. And they have to have somebody to go out to this lecture hall on Tuesday and Thursday evening and video record it. And uh, we thought you could probably go do that. Would you like to do that? I said, sure, fine. So they gave me an old VCR, one of those things that weighs, you know, 60 pounds or something. And it's, you know, like one inch tape kind of stuff. Um, and some lights and some microphones and one camera on a tripod. And I would go set up in this room and the lecturer would, you know, I'd say, give him a cue to go and roll the camera and just record the event for an hour, an hour and a half, I guess it was on Tuesday and Thursday. And I got to tell you, at first it was just like archival. It's like, I got a decent picture. I just figured that out because I've been a photographer a lot of my life as well. And I, so I got it going, but I did that for a whole semester. And during that time, I, after the first two or three times, it's like, hey, I want to experiment. <laughs> I want to do things with it. And so I started to do things with playing with the camera and playing with the light. I'm still, I'm still recording it archivally, but I'm making it a better, better thing. And the more you can do one thing, the more it starts to be, hey, there's lots of other things you learn you can do by just trying a few things. And that opened a door to lighting for broadcast. I didn't start my career as a theater lighting designer thinking, oh, I'm going to go do broadcast. But that became, you know, that became just something that, oh, all of a sudden after you work with a camera on lighting for, you know, four, five, six months, you start to get a real clear idea of how the camera and the lighting work. And so I guess what I'm trying to say with that story is that um, sometimes uh, opportunities find you. And I think that what I tell um, I've been on a, a mentoring program for about 15 years now. And the first thing I tell young men and women coming up in the lighting design world, our theater lighting design world, there are no bad gigs. There are <laughs> difficult gigs. <laughs> There's no bad gigs. You know, learn something on every single, every single gig you work. You're going to network with people on every single thing you do. And they all offer opportunities to learn, to watch somebody else do something or see some guy high rigging. Oh, wow, I never knew that was happening. So there's so many opportunities. So there's no bad gigs. Take, take every gig, take every gig and survive, <laughs> you know, but yeah. the, the, the world starts to talk to us about what we can do with our lighting skills. And the more that we can bring theater people into the world of architectural lighting design, and the more that architectural lighting designers at least do some level of theater design, I think it works it works well for both sides because the architectural lighting designers learn about more dynamic control and skill, and the theater design guys learn how to like do something wrong that what you just said that really has permanence. You know, you can do something that's going to be there for a few years. What's more heartbreaking yep. than doing a really great show for five nights? And then there's a reason there's so many tears at the strike party, right? It's like people don't want it yep. to end. The inevitable part of a theater run is it's going to end. Sooner or later, it's right. going to end. Well, it doesn't just end in the architectural lighting world. It goes on and on and on. So there's right. an appeal there as well. Yeah. Well, 
So just to kind of summarize everything that we've talked about here today, I mean, from your perspective as an engineer and lighting designer, you know, it seems as though in our industry, there's been sort of a fundamental shift at some point, And it seems to be around the point where theatrical designers joined the started joining the industry a lot more, where lighting separated itself from the line voltage to be controlled. And Somewhere in that, with that, with that change, became a need for lighting designers to step up a little bit more in their role and to really work the lighting controls as a design as much as it is needing to be engineered by people like you or, or people who, who are on the engineering side or even Ron who's integrating this stuff. But the lighting designer is really sort of the sole carrier of the intent of the lighting and therefore should be able to communicate how that control is going to support the intent. But at the same time, lighting has kind of evolved as well and is leaning on more advanced lighting control solutions to be able to achieve a more dynamic living experience as opposed to a static snapshot experience. And so it really sounds like to be a good lighting controls designer, you really should have this updated perspective when it comes to our industry. and lighting design as a whole. And so hopefully, you know, people who are listening, people who are watching this or who haven't made that change are going to maybe look into, okay, how do I make this change? And those who are resistant to that change, at least from your perspective, may get steamrolled by the competition because of the fact that they're able to, to stay up to date. But, um, you know, I think this was a really fantastic conversation and I really appreciate you coming in and, and giving us your perspective on this. And I think, you know, if anything, we can at least keep having these conversations about lighting controls, because whether or not things have actually changed, whether or not lighting designers should be the sole carriers of this change, we're going to find out and we're going to have a conversation about it, hopefully in the future and maybe you know, we'll check in at some point, Norm, and, and see, okay, you know, it's been five years from now, from when we had that conversation. Have things improved? We'll find out, but. Or, or I retired. <laughs> <laughs> or you retired. Keep asking, Norm, how long are you going to do this? And I said, hey, when I start on the keyboard and drop on the pencil, you got to say, Norm, go sit in the corner, you're done. But uh, no, I'm not planning on retiring anytime soon. And I would love to come back sometime. But everything you just said, uh, Webster, is true. It's 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 asking everybody to step up, you know? And it's it's not a bad thing. It's not really a hard thing. It's a fun thing. It's an exciting kind of a thing, too. And I urge everybody who's interested, uh, go to the IS site and take a look at the standards that are there. There's a lot of really good information about the controls. So. Uh, and also to, to circle back on what you had said, Certified Lighting Controls Practitioner. That is a certification by NELMCO, and the Lighting Controls Association supports that through their Education Express portal. So, um, you know, they do a really great job of giving free education to anybody who's interested. But yes, I, I totally agree with IES as well. Great. Yeah. And I mean, well, this has I, been a great... Go ahead, This Ron. has been a great conversation. <laughs> so, <laughs> I just want to um, say I really enjoyed the conversation. I, you know, we I love this the subject. I really love lighting, and uh, it's fun to talk about. And it's also interesting to talk about too because it makes you think about well, what's going on out there? What do we need to do? How can it work? How can it get better? Yes. So it's a good conversation yeah. on my side as well.
No, yeah, it's been it's been this has been a lot of fun. It's been a great conversation. And, you know, it's obviously it's it's very clear the three of us are fairly aligned in our views of the world today. Um, right. And not everyone listening to this podcast, maybe. But if right. the passion that the three of us bring to what we're doing, if everything we talked about today swings just one person listening around to the other side of the fence to want to engage more to want to ask more questions mm -hmm. to want to take that next step then this entire conversation was worth it agreed right, right. no i agree completely and if they don't more for us that's right <laughs> <laughs> well norm thank you so much really appreciate it great thank you i enjoyed my time thank you you got to go to SATCO for your track lighting. That's S-A-T-C-O dot com. Greg Eric here in studio with me in Toronto, Canada. That's Whoa. right. Yeah, no, track lighting, I, and I, that's something I have gone to because I have all the different heads, all the different sizes, all the different colors, single circuit, two circuit. Again, like SATCO always does, they've got it all, track lighting included. If you ever have a project, check them out. Yeah, and you know what? Track lighting is so wonderful to sell because you can make a lot of money on track lighting. <laughs> That's right. Go to SATCO.com, SATCO.com. Of course, proud members of the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. That's NALD.org. And, of course, Webster, Marsh, and Ron Kuzmar kicking it wild, old school with the lighting controls. That's right. It's old school, new school with those two. And um, who is our guest again? Scott, I keep forgetting this guy. Norman Russell. Norman Russell. Thank you for coming on the show. I'm going to listen to this podcast as soon as it drops. Don't worry. I'll check it out. And for all you that made it to the end, thanks for listening. Bye for now.